Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome back to Strides Forward, where we share stories about running told by women. I'm Cherie Louise Turner, the producer and host of Strides Forward. And in this episode, you'll hear from marathoner and ultra runner Sarah Lavender-Smith. In addition to being a competitive runner for over two decades, Sarah is a coach and writer. She's author of the book The Trail Runner's Companion, a step-by-step guide to trail running and racing from 5Ks to ultras. She writes a column for Ultra Running Magazine, and she blogs about running. I'll touch more on these things after the story. All to say that Sarah knows running from many angles. And she challenges herself over many distances and over lots of different types of terrain. She's done road marathons, trail ultras from 50K to 100 miles, and even several multi-day self-supported stage races. When we talked, she was in the midst of training for a road marathon. And in this story, Sarah shares her wisdom of longevity and experience in her own words. I'm going to leave this story to Sarah, and you'll hear from me afterwards. On to Sarah's story. I'm Sarah Lavender-Smith, and I'm living here outside of Telluride, Colorado, and I'm 52 years old. So I've been running for more than half my life now. I remember distinctly the day I started running. I was a couple months shy of my 25th birthday. It was the first Monday in March of 1994, and I was not a runner before then. I mean, I grew up in a household with um, a lot of cigarette smoking and drinking, and I partied pretty hardy. And it says darn cigarettes. I mean, my oh, my parents just smoked one to two packs a day our entire lives. So I grew up in a smoky house and smoky cars, and they condoned me starting to smoke at 16. So I smoked from age 16 until my early 20s. It was very, it was, you know, extremely hard to quit. And the only way I was able to quit is my wonderful siblings in my last year of college at UC Santa Cruz when this was 1989 and 90, um, when mountain biking was just becoming a big thing. They pooled their money and bought me a bike so that I could ride a bike to campus. And it was the first, like, step toward being mildly athletic and and it motivated me to quit smoking so that I could ride that bike up the hill. Um, so running was not in my realm of, <laughs> of reality or something I did. That changed my first year in graduate school in Berkeley when I went and watched a couple of friends run a marathon. It was the Napa Valley Marathon in 1994. And I, it, I was blown away. I just, I'd never witnessed anything like that. And I 
was so inspired by all the average looking people crossing the finish line. So the very next day, that Monday in first Monday in March in 94, I, um, I laced up my Reeboks, which were like the ankle high kind with the Velcro flaps and my big baggy sweats. And, um, I had once in my life run six laps around a track, so I knew I could run a mile and a half. So I got in our Toyota Corolla and zeroed out the odometer and I drove a mile and a half away because back then we didn't have GPS. So I knew I could um, run a mile and a half to that point and then I would walk home. And I drove back home and I went out and did it. I started running and I just felt so good. I said, I am running home. So I turned around and ran all the way back and I, I totaled three miles. So that was my first real run ever. And it really um, took hold of me. I got better at it. I made a goal to go run the marathon that my friends had done one year later. And I made a goal to run the whole thing and try to break four hours by running an average nine minute pace. And I did it. And that was my first marathon of many. Um, I've run over a hundred marathons and ultras at this point. And I got into it because I think it was an outlet for my stress as a graduate student at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. I was very stressed out and not very happy in hindsight. And I think it opened up a world that I hadn't been aware of. And just the physical feeling of well-being of, of my body generating heat and energy and losing weight and feeling the best I'd ever felt. I just had never felt physically so good. And I think I liked the immediate feedback and also the, the way that I could quantify success and build on success by growing my mileage volume and following a training plan and all those kinds of things. When I was dealing with some very stressful things in graduate school, running was always there for me. Running always gave me a sense of of success and healthiness and friends. That's the other thing. Um, I had friends a little bit in graduate school and I, I was married at that time. It was unusual because I, I married my husband young, but I didn't have a great friend group until I plugged into runner friends. So it opened up a new world socially. And, you know, we just have a runner friend. It's very therapeutic. I will say it can be troublesome too. Um, <laughs> uh, a running relationship nearly destroyed my marriage back in the mid 2000s because running running creates intimacy. Um, I was in a training group when I was road racing. I was really at the peak of um, road marathoning, and there was a person in that group I really needed to separate myself from, and it was one of the hardest things I ever did. Breaking up with that person in that running group. And I changed everything. And I started running trails by myself. It was a very difficult time in my life. And I found solace and solitude and sort of a rebirth on the trail. I got a taste of the trails when I first started running because of where I lived in the East Bay area. It has an incredible trail network. And so I um, started with a running group in the East Bay Area, and we would go run trails around Mount Diablo on the weekends. But that, was, that wasn't that big of a deal. It was just like six-mile runs on dirt. 
what really was influential, um, I had a trail running and ultra running mentor, none other than the legendary Ann Trayson, who happened to be a neighbor of mine. And she was the pioneering female ultra runner in the 80s and 90s who won Western States 114 times. She still has records that stand. And so in the mid-90s, right as I was getting out of graduate school and we moved to a little town just north of North Berkeley called Kensington, I would see this woman run up my street every day and run around the, the neighborhood. And, and I asked, like, who is that person? And I found out she was Ann Trayson. And I started to understand her legendary status. And I decided this was when she was at her peak winning both Western States 100 and the Comrades Ultramarathon in South Africa two weeks apart. So it's just this phenomenal feat. And so I I wrote a profile of her for a local publication, and that really opened my mind to what Western States 100 was all about. So I kind of became a student of the sport before I ever graduated to ultra distances or ran predominantly on trail. And then in the early to mid 2000s, I took a women's trail running camp that introduced me to a lot of East Bay area trails. And it was just a really powerful experience. So then when I had sort of this personal upheaval in my life and needed to change my running scene and did everything I could do, repair and rebuild my marriage, that's when I became really passionate about the trails. And I ran several trail marathons before really getting into 50Ks and then bumping up to higher distances. I had the um, bizarre, surprising experience of winning the first 50K I entered. Um, I think I, I mean, it's like being a medium-sized fish in a puddle. I mean, it was a very small event, (laughs) but still I was like the first woman and fourth overall or something. And so that, that just lit a fire under me, especially because I was, you know, I had a toddler and a baby and I was struggling career wise and kind of riding the coattails of my husband's career. And so this was just a lot of ego validation and motivation and you know, I think I'm I'm speaking as a 52-year-old now, and this was when I was in my early to mid-30s, and so it, it was a different phase of life, but it really, um, it really supercharged me and felt good, and I just wanted to keep seeing what I could do. And so much of what I love about extra long ultras, you know, 50 to 100 miles or the self-supported stage races over a week that I sometimes do, it, it's so strategic. And it is not at all about just physical fitness. It's it's really about strategy and logistics and, and mental preparation. So I want to run smart, which means being really smart about gauging my pace and running within myself and taking care of my systems along the way. So systems management, meaning fueling, hydration, thermoregulation, All of that matters so much um, when you're out there past sunset. And so a lot of, uh, there's a lot of drama in that, you know, (laughs) it's like just trying to like take care of yourself and keep your, your shit together. And, 
and not blow up and not give up and not hurt yourself along the way. So just being out there in kind of the excitement of, you know, I'm going to take care of myself and, and prevent problems. So that's what's going on with me mentally as well as physically along the way. And it's highly focused, you know, it's just about getting from point A to point B and doing it as well as you can. And so I like, I like that challenge. So if I'm catastrophizing or ruminating or having anxiety about the miles still to come, I just try to say, shut up and run and focus on what's around me. And um, one of the one of the tricks I do to employ that was reinforced by having when a client of mine um, is visually impaired and he needs a guide to run with on ultras. And so I pretend I'm being a guide to a visually impaired person and it forces me to narrate in my head what I'm looking at and the trail we're covering. And it sounds silly, but it's insanely effective. If you have to say, if you have to focus so much that you're describing where you're running to someone, then you're guaranteed to be highly focused in the present. And so that takes my mind off the the aches and pains. Um, If that's not working and I happen to be near somebody, I often buddy up with someone and um, I'll put on my reporter hat and start interviewing them and just asking questions, which may be pestering to them. and Maybe they'll run away to get away from me. But if I can strike up a conversation and just ask some questions that gets another person talking and it gives me something to listen to, then then I really enjoy that. And then, you know, I, I love the old saying, um, well, two old sayings. One is fake it till you make it. So just kind of pretending that, hey, I'm fine. I think that's a Courtney DeWalter saying. She when she was I'll just try and push out the negative thoughts by repeating to myself something over and over, like, uh, you're fine, this is fine, everything is fine. That's one of my mantras that I use. This is fine, this is fine. So I've kind of adopted that mantra. It's like, hey, this is fine, even though it's I don't feel fine. This is fine. You know, and so just kind of pretending and faking and practicing optimism. And then it, you actually will start feeling fine. And then I always default to this saying that my first coach back in the mid nineties is this wonderful, wonderful man named Alfonso Jackson. And I connected with him because I, like everyone in the nineties, I did the team and training marathon program and then was a mentor for it. So Coach Alfonso would say to me, honey, even when you feel bad, try to look good. And so I always tell myself, even if you feel bad, try to look good. And it sounds silly, but if I run as if I want to look good, as if someone's videoing me, it is amazing how it fixes your form, it relaxes your jawline, it puts a smile on your face, and it ties in with fake it till you make it. Like if you can you know, try to run as if you're running with good form and looking good, you actually will feel better. And then the other thing I do, I mean, I've had some very, very dark moments during ultras, especially in the middle of the night of 100 milers or out on um, some of these self-supported seven-day stage races that I've done. And it is, um, I mean, it's hard to articulate how desperate and negative 
it can feel. And at that point, I just default to committing not to quit. And it may be that I need to fall down and take a 10-minute nap on the side of the trail, which I did last summer at the High Lonesome 100, um, or other things. And and at that time, it's it's not just committing not to quit, but it's also maintaining your sense of humor and your perspective that this is what you signed up for and someday we'll laugh about this. And I'll tell you something to avoid rather than something to do. So as a storyteller who has written numerous race reports for my blog and other forums, I, I start telling stories in my head. And it is so often the case, I know other runners have said they do this, where midway through a race, you start composing a story about the narrative of your race. And the story you start telling in your head starts to be the story about why it wasn't your day and like all the things that went wrong and how you would explain it. And if you find yourself mentally creating that story, you just have to shut up and shut it down. It is the quickest way to end your race. And so I just, I learned to recognize if I'm telling a story about my race midway and say, hey, Sarah, shut up. The race isn't done. You know, refocus. And um, so I just know mentally to, to not let myself go there anymore. So I have two wonderful kids, um, my daughter, Collie, who's now 23, and my son, Kyle, who's 20, and neither of them are runners. I never pushed running on them, except that's not true. I encouraged my son, Kyle, to sign up for sixth grade cross country, and he really disliked it. So, um, so honestly, running was always a bit separate from parenting, and it was it was good for my marriage and relationship, I think, in my family in that when I did my disappearing act of going on a long run on the weekend for half the day, it gave my husband a time to reconnect with the kids after his work week and put him in charge. So I always actually honestly kept my identity as a mother somewhat separate from from my identity as a competitive runner. Um, it's been really gratifying now that my kids are older, that they've expressed more interest in what I do. Um, my, my daughters, they're, they're actually both more athletic now. And my daughter in particular loves the trail, although more hiking than running. But it's, um, I mean, my identity as a mother, which is you know, the thing I'm most proud about way more than what I've done as a runner or coach. I'm, 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 I'm fundamentally mostly proud that I have, I've raised two kids who are happy and healthy and I have good relationship with them. It's like, I'm, 
I am so grateful for how my kids have turned out and our relationship. And I'm so grateful for my strong and happy marriage too. So the, those are like the bedrock parts of my identity is, is that family, that our family foursome and our home. And then, so my running is really just an adjunct of that and something I do separately from it. So I would say it's, it's really my thing. It's, it's what, it's my thing separate from what I do in other realms of life. So, um, so I never dragged my family to races, but we did have some special getaways and it really culminated around my, my wonderful once in a lifetime experience in 2016 of running Western States 100 because then my husband and two kids they got really excited for me and they did they were old enough at that point cuz let's see my daughter was a senior in high school and my son was a freshman um, so they were teenagers and they thought it was really cool and um, they just had a blast all during the day <laughs> until I got to the critical aid station of mile 62 at Forest Hill at like 7 p.m. at night. I was right on 24-hour pace. And I get there and it was just three tired faces. They were burned out by the end of the day. They had had their fill. And so even though it was wonderful having them during that experience, I'm glad I had another couple of friends as my other crew members. But but I tell you, um, having... My son at, you know, five in the morning or something, meet me on the um, road leading to the Auburn track. And he was all excited and I get to the track and there's my daughter on, you know, filming me with her phone and then she put her phone away. And then my kids ran with me around, I'm like getting teary telling this because it was so special that they were there and they they were really impressed and um, so that I know that they admire what I do and I I think it has definitely made them more outdoorsy and athletic in their own ways but we've, we've had some good times together for sure. So Uh, My adult life was almost entirely in the East Bay Area ever since I went to graduate school in Berkeley. Then my husband Morgan and I bought our first home there and we raised our kids in the Berkeley and Oakland area. But my family roots on my dad's side are here in Telluride. My grandfather was born and raised in Telluride and his grandfather was a town founder and my my grandfather and his brother and his wife, my grand, grandmother, were amazing athletes. I don't know how it skipped my dad. But my grandfather and his brother were founding uh, members of the San Juan Mountaineers here in the San Juan Mountains. And they did all kinds of mountain treks. And then when my grandfather got together with my grandmother and brought her to Colorado. She was the first one on record to climb the 14 or Sneffels and she did all this other mountain stuff. So I feel like the ghost of their spirits kind of somehow is connected to me. So we moved here full time in the spring of 2019 and I've been here since so it's coming up on 3 years. Um but yeah, it changed my running in so far as it made me more of a mountain runner. We our house is at nine thousand feet, and the mountains I'm looking at out the window are twelve to thirteen and fourteen thousand feet. 
So there's no such thing as an easy run here. I mean, the, my easy pace is hiking, but it's much more rugged and and I it, it's really changed my skill set as a runner. You know, our weather is so dramatic here, especially in the summer monsoon season, and it's I've well, I've really learned how to read and respect the weather. It's just learning to anticipate and prepare for weather and to prevent getting extremely chilled. Um, I mean, it, it can be really dangerous and learning how to deal with electrical storms. Um, so I'm, I feel like I'm tougher and smarter in that regard. And just more generally in terms of learning trail safety. And so, you know, I've taken wilderness first aid and I've had to deal with um, some serious cuts and stuff o- along the trail that I previously might not have known how to deal with. And I have more fully em- embraced and learned about what it means to get up and down mountainsides and, you know, always trying to get above tree line in the summer and hiking is a lower gear of running. But I think that's why I'm going back to do a road marathon. I don't want to lose the runner runner part of me, you know, the one that can run 26 miles decently well without a break. So um, it's a good, I'm trying to get some balance there. But I've been thinking a lot about competition because um, road marathons intimidate the heck out of me now because it is it is so humbling because I'm so much slower than I used to be. And I'm slower now, not just as a product of aging, but it's because I live in the mountains now at high altitude. And a lot of my so-called running um, combines hiking over really rugged out, rugged terrain in the, um, the thin air. And so, you know, back in California, running at sea level in my prime, um, eight minute miles felt really easy. And my marathon goal pace was in the low seven. So I was trying to um, get closer to three hours or as close to three hours with the marathon as I could. Now, I, I mean, I struggle to get in the low eights and my slow pace is 10 to 12 minutes or, or even slower if there's a lot of hiking involved in the mountains. So I've normalized you know, five to six miles per hour and anything under 10 minute pace is, is faster. So trying to get my legs and lungs and mind ready to run again at a steady sub nine minute pace is taking a lot of work this season. And so I'm kind of coming full circle because my very first marathon back in um, 1995 in my first year running, my goal was to run the whole thing and average around a nine minute pace. And here I am, you know, 26 or however many years later, and that's my goal again. And, and, you know, I just like, please let me break four hours. I mean, I would enter when I was faster, um, I would enter races with the goal of competing against others. So I, it was kind of arbitrary, but you know, I would love to be on a podium. I'd love an age group ward or even in really competitive races like Lake Sonoma 50, I'd say like, I want to be at least in the top 20. So I'd have these quantifiable or outcome oriented goals that related to other people's performance and competing against other people. And that's really gone. Like, I don't, I don't care 
what other people are doing or how I measure up to other people. I'm really racing my watch. So it's really me against the clock and me trying to do my best on any given day. That's what I'm going for. And so I'm just entering this road marathon, trying to run the whole thing, have respectable eight and a half to nine minute mile pace and get under four hours. You know, that is more than I'm competing with my watch and trying to keep my ego in check and just practice practice self-compassion for where I'm at right now, you know, and try to be my own biggest cheerleader and say, hey, it is great. You are challenging yourself by getting off the mountain trails and and to me running without stopping on pavement is a different kind of challenge and a daunting challenge. I, I love having races on calendar because it's it's structure and motivation. And I just, it's it's part of who I am. Like, I mean, my dad was a golfer and loved the PGA and would follow the PGA, which is, that was his thing. You know, my thing is getting into races and making a pilgrimage to races. And it's really... Um, a lot of it is escapist because it's not competitive anymore. It's that it gives me a special day to look forward to. And it is that day at an ultra or sometimes 48 hours if it's a mountain hundred miler. It is, it is your day when all that matters in the world is getting from point A to point B as efficiently as you can. And I love that freedom. And I love the destinations that I get to run in. So that that is a big part of it. And it's um, it reconnects me with people. You know, I've had a lot of changes in my life and this has been a constant and it's it's part of my identity. And I, I love it. I'm so happy and grateful to have it in my life. And it, it helps keep me young. I feel really good in my early 50s and like I want to keep doing races. So why would I why would I stop? Ah, there are just so many things in this story that I love. So many great takeaways. And yeah, why ever stop racing? I completely agree with Sarah. And she's got some big events lined up this year. She recently ran the marathon she was training for when we spoke and she did meet her sub four-hour goal. Congratulations to Sarah on that. Coming up, she'll be racing the Miwok 100K, and she got into the High Lonesome 100 Miler, which is a grueling event. She's also got a lot of other great events on the horizon, so we wish her the best of luck in all those great challenges. And you can join me in keeping up with Sarah on Twitter and Instagram. She's at Sarah Running. And that's Sarah with an H. And in there, you'll see information about Sarah's running as well as her horses. Sarah is also a very avid horsewoman, and she has two horses out there in Colorado with her. They are beautiful, and she posts some really great photos of them. You can also subscribe to Sarah's Colorado Mountain Running and Living the title speaks for itself as to what the subjects are that she writes about. And in there, you'll find a full race report from the marathon she just ran. Sarah's race reports are always a great read, so I definitely recommend checking that out. I also recommend her previous blog, The Runner's Trip. 
She's not adding to it anymore, but there's still tons of articles about training and running, and there's some personal essays in there, and Sarah's just a really good writer. So enjoy checking all of that out. And check out Sarah's book, The Trail Runner's Companion. It's filled with lots of really useful information. And of course, I will link to all of these things in the show notes, so you can go there to follow up on all these items. I want to give a big thank you to Sarah for being a part of the podcast and sharing her story. I'd been wanting to have her on the show for a long time, and I'm excited that that time has finally come. For my own personal reasons, being that I'm 52 and I've been competing in one sport or another since I was five, I'm always curious to know what keeps women interested in competing as they get older. For me, I love to race for many of the same reasons that Sarah does. It keeps me focused. It gives me a reason to go to new places and try new things. And it is always fun to share meaningful time with friends. Race time together and as well as training time together, you just make special bonds. And having listened to Sarah's story, I now want to try this idea of trying to look good. We'll see how that goes, and I'll keep you posted. And on that note, to keep up with future episodes, please hit the subscribe button. And also, please share the podcast with your friends. I'd love for these stories to inspire and inform as many people as possible, and word of mouth is a tremendous gift to us in that mission. So thank you. And thank you, of course, for listening. As I say at the end of every episode, we love sharing these stories, but we really we couldn't do it without you. It is just the truth. And I welcome you to visit our website, stridesforwardpodcast.com. We're also active on social media, on Instagram and Twitter, at Strides Forward. That's our handle in both places. Also know that I do not make this show by myself. Cormac O'Regan does all the original music, and he does sound design. He does that from his studio in Cork, Ireland, when he isn't out training for the Rotterdam Marathon, which is coming up in April. April Mariner of Bonfire Collaborative does all the design work for the show, including the website, merch, logo, and all the social media. April comes to you from Truckee, California, and you can find her at bonfirecollaborative.com. And yes, I'm Cherie Louise Turner, and I'm coming to you from my closet in Somerville, Massachusetts. Thank you so much again for listening, and until next time, we all wish you many healthy, joyful strides forward. There is no hood like parenthood. When you meet a fellow parent, you just kind of get each other on a whole nother level. Hi, I'm Kanika Chanda Gupta. I'm a former CNN journalist, mom of three, including twins, and host of That's Total Mom Sense, the podcast. I interview change makers on their life lessons, legacy, and superpower of intuition, aka their mom sense and dad sense. I've had some pretty amazing parents on my show. Hey, what's up? I'm Kelly Rowland. Hi, this is Chelsea Clinton. It's me, Bobby Brown. Can't wait to share my story. Episodes release every Thursday. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and on YouTube. Join my tribe at thatstotalmomsense.com and follow me on Instagram at Kanika Chanda Gupta. I'm thrilled to be on this journey with you.